This is the Ivy League Hoops Hour, where we cover all things men's basketball in the ancient eight. We are your hub, your go-to, your day one, but not really, though. I'm your co-host, Coach Sidney Johnson, former head coach of the Princeton Tigers from 2007 to 2011 and former three-time captain of the Tigers in 95, 96, and 97. And my co-host is Princeton alum and former Princeton graduate assistant coach, Lawrence L. Boogie Schuler. Lawrence, how are you making out? I'm feeling great, Coach. How about you? I'm doing terrific, Lawrence. I'm excited about this week's episode. We have an outstanding interview with Columbia University, former men's basketball player and ESPN big-time personality, Dallin Cuff. I know we're covering a whole lot of stuff this week. Obviously, the ancient eight-week that was pretty low-key, not a ton of games, but let's get into it as we're going to cover all things men's basketball. Let's get started. Here we are again, folks, at our segment of My Eyes Don't Lie to Me. Again, an homage to the great Manchester United midfielder, Roy Keane. My eyes don't lie to me. Who currently does commentary on Sky Sports over in England and many other platforms. And he's always talking about watching the games and his eyes not lying to him, telling him what he sees and what's best for the team's players, all that are involved. And so we're doing the same thing, not coming to it with any kind of preconceived notions, myself and Lawrence, but watching these games deep dive and then reporting out to you all the games of the week, the teams of the week, and the players of the week. So this week, Lawrence, what do we have for game of the week? My game of the week was Princeton versus Lafayette. The Lafayette game is usually a tough one for Princeton. Head coach Fran O'Hanlon has been at Lafayette for some time, and his teams are always prepared to play this game. But Princeton put up 84 points in an 11-point win, and we got appearances from 16 different Tigers. Interesting. My game of the week was Yale at Iona. Lawrence, I was looking closely at that game. Iona, one of the top teams in the MAC mid-major conference that uh, boasts also Mammoth. Those two teams looking very strong. Mammoth actually beating Princeton. Uh, and so I'm thinking Yale could get a quality win against an Iona Gales team. Iona having beaten Alabama early in the season in the ESPN tournament down in Orlando. And also Yale having an opportunity to beat a team, uh, only the second team with a winning record as they beat UMass 1-0 earlier in the season. None of their other wins have come against winning teams. And so I was excited to see how Yale would perform. Unfortunately, they came up short 91-77. Azar Swain was outstanding, 34.7 made threes, but no other bulldog in double figures. Yale got out-rebounded and had as many team turnovers as they had assists, so not the best outing for them. Obviously, great experience to play a good team, and I'm sure they're looking for that experience to inform them a little bit better going into Ivy League play. Now, as we look at Team of the Week, there's really, as you alluded to, Lawrence, not a ton of wins for the Ancient Eight this week, but Princeton coming out 2-0. and What say you about the Tigers? Princeton's looking really good. Are they still your number one seed for Ivy Madness? Without question, Princeton would be my number one seed for Ivy Madness. They've been the best team in the league, Lawrence, from day one. And I would say they're one. I think Cornell, the Big Red, offensively efficient, playing fast, low turnovers and high assists, second best team in the league in my humble opinion. Lawrence, the Brown Bears have been kept out of the mix. I don't know why. Not enough people are talking about them. They boast the league's best defense. I have them as the third seed. And Harvard, despite a lot of injuries, they are still competing. I'd have them as the fourth best team in the league. That's my one, two, three, four. But I think you and I are united. Princeton, for sure, is the team of this week. We are also united on Ethan Wright being this week's player of the week. Ethan Wright had 22 points in that win versus Lafayette and then coupled it with a 20.14 rebound effort versus UMBC. The Tigers go 2-0, and Ethan Wright leads the Tigers in rebounding. Yes, folks, rebounding, a guard, and steals, and is second in scoring, and I'd say the top Tiger for big plays down the stretch. So we have that Princeton, aforementioned Princeton game from Lawrence as his game of the week. 
and I'll go with Yale versus Iona, despite the loss. Team of the week, there's no other than the Princeton Tigers playing very good basketball all season long. And Ethan Wright as player of the week on the Ivy League Hoops Hour. That is, my eyes don't lie to me. We are now at the guest segment of the Ivy League Hoops Hour, and today's distinguished guest has worked for ESPN since 2016, both as a studio host and providing in-game analysis. His versatility and talent have covered a range of forums and sports from the biggest of college basketball games. He actually covered Brown playing at UNC earlier this year. The Brown Bears played very well. And last week's NCAA Division I Men's College Cup, essentially the Final Four for soccer. He calls ESPN home, but previously worked for Comcast Sportsnet New England and NBC Sports Network, where he covered the 2016 Rio Olympics. His journey all started at Columbia University, where he served as captain of the men's basketball team during his senior season and remains one of the most accomplished three-point shooters in program history. We have none other than Dallin Cuff. Dallin, how you making out? Sydney, what, a, what an intro. Uh, appreciate, appreciate that. Uh, great to be on with you and Lawrence, uh, talking Ivy League hoops and whatnot. You are well accomplished, my brother, so I had to get it all <laughs> in. And we do have Lawrence L. Boogie Schuler here, my co-host, so I'm going to let him kick it off. Dallin, welcome to the pod. Whenever we have a new guest on the pod, we like to learn a little bit more about their background. Our listeners will know you from ESPN and all of the great analysis that you do, but we don't really get to hear much about you. So do you mind telling us about your time in AAU and how the coaches at Columbia and the other Ivies came to know you? Cool. Yeah. Um, wasn't a very heavily recruited player, mostly the academies. Had some opportunity. Dave Davidson could have been a preferred walk-on, if you will, there. And Try to fight it, fight it out. Because pre Steph Curry would have been uh, Pete Andrew actually was a really good player there back in the day. And Pete's yeah, dad was. was a Columbia professor. Um, that was when when Pete would play with us in the summers. I mean, Pete led the country in three point three point field goals made or percentage. Yeah. I think his junior and senior year. Yeah. Um, but it was funny. And when he played in the summer, <laughs> I would just laugh. I'm like, how did Armand let you leave? Like Armand Hill was a coach, and I love Armand. He brought me to Columbia, but I was like, how the hell did this guy end up at Davidson when his dad is literally at the campus? And this is where he wanted to go to school. Um, but those type of things happen. But um, for me, basically, Columbia kind of got in the game. Uh, they started reaching out, I think, January, my senior year. I broke my wrist the beginning of my uh, junior year, which obviously is really important in, in getting recruited and whatnot. I flipped off the rim, and I came down and, and shattered my wrist and missed the majority of my junior year. Summer playing kind of in and out of AU with the Nike team, Adidas team down there. And wasn't really heavily recruited. Uh, like I said, the service academies, I thought I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but just my brother went and played football at the Air Force Academy. I didn't want to live that life, for lack of a better term. I couldn't have more respect for what the, those young men and women do, not only in the institutions, but obviously once they move forward in their military careers. Um, lack of a better term, I just wasn't, just, just didn't have, just didn't have the stuff to do it. Um, and uh, Columbia, Columbia started recruiting me probably around like January or December of my senior year, which obviously is pretty late. And I took my visit there uh, right after our season had ended. I think it was the last week of March, maybe the first week of April, and. Um, I think it was Walt Towns was the lead assistant there at the time. As I mentioned, Armand Hill was the coach. And I thought it was funny how they would bring in recruits a lot of times in their, in their administration. They would have you fly into Newark. And if anybody's you know, familiar with the New York City area, that's not exactly the ideal airport to fly into if you're going to come into the city. <laughs> but right. they would like to uh, they put you on the train. They would meet you there, put you on the train, and then take the train with you in because that takes you underneath the guard. So you walk out, and the fir your first image of New York City then is Madison Square Garden. And for a a student of the game, a hoops junkie like myself, I was there with my dad, uh, and I'll never forget it. As soon as we walked out, I kind of turned my head around and looked around. He goes, your eyes are as big as saucers. Like, he knew it was it was a wrap upon that, and then I went up to campus, and uh, for those of you who have been to Columbia's campus before, uh, it's absolutely beautiful, that, that oasis in the middle of a, a concrete jungle, and I love my trip, love the opportunity to play there. Obviously, our first year, we were pretty pretty horrible. I learned more about uh, life than I think I've, I'd ever thought in terms of that. It was no better year socially. And like opening my eyes to so many different things and no more year, more painful uh, athletically. So and I'd never lost in, in any sport that I ever played. So to lose at the level we did in that 2003, 0203 Columbia Lions team was pretty remarkable. 
Um, but it taught me a lot. I'm thankful that Armand uh, and Walt and uh, Bill Johnson want to be part of the program because let's be real, fellas. I'm not getting into that school if I can't make a couple jump shots. Like, there's just <laughs> zero chance. So maybe your listeners don't appreciate that. There are certain skills that some of us had that allow us to have these opportunities. I do think we bring something as athletes, maybe not the 1,600 SAT scores, although there were quite a few of those for my teammates, not for me. But I think athletes and, and the athletic community bring something unique and different perspective uh, to the Ivy League institutions. So some of us may not have been as accomplished academically. Doesn't necessarily mean we didn't belong once we got there, but I was thankful to have the opportunity because outside of that, those kids did so much more than me academically in high school. I can't even can't even fathom how hard it was for them to get into those institutions. So I know I was fortunate to do it. Armand and Hill and Walter Towns are near and dear to my heart, Dallin. Those are guys that I've known for many years. And uh, Walter is one of the funniest guys I've, I've ever uh, come across. And, and there's another one that I want to bring up. Um, but um, what was the lowest point? I mean, I know that that was hard for Coach Hill. He and I are very mm-hmm. close um, but if you don't mind us, you know, going there, I mean, it's, it, you know, because sometimes it's not all the, 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 the roses and the glory and you learn so much as you said about yourself. So what was the lowest point that season? That's a, that's a really good question, Sydney. Um, and I do think there's so much there, there whether the book is going to be written as my teammates want it to be. I think it's more to the current day, a podcast format to tell the story of this team, because it was like a dark comedy and how much you, I mean, it was, there are hilarious points. But because it is so painful to go through, but I think the low point was, and we had at one stretch we we went down and we beat uh, we beat Army in the beginning of the year. We were zero and five. I think we beat Army and we beat one and five. But then we went and played in a Christmas tournament in uh, UTEP at the Sun Bowl. They have a they have a combined you know Sun Bowls of uh, obviously a college football bowl experience, but they have a little four team tournament there at the same time. Get off the plane. We got mariachi bands, all this stuff. We're like this is this is for us. Like this is, this is bizarre, but it was a. Uh, it was a fun experience. We beat UTEP on their floor in front of like 10,000 people, Holy which strange. was sh- shocking. Yeah, uh, Marco yeah. McCautry steps up to the line, makes – he's like a 40% free throw shooter. He was our captain. He made both free throws down one to give us a win. So we, we play UAB the next night in the championship, and we're thinking, okay, maybe we can turn this thing around a little bit. And then the wheels just started to come off, and we ended up losing eight, the last 18 straight of the, game, of the season. And there was a session. We come up for practice, and – Coach Hill, it's not to put the balls away to run. There just were no balls. And there was just the, like a bunch of chairs. And it became like a therapy session. Like dudes are talking. Guys, are, guy, one guy or two guys are crying. And the one guy that's crying, I think all of us is like, dude, you don't care. These are like fake tears. That was part of the theme. I'm like, you're, this is, you're not even being real. And we're supposed to be real right now. That was, I, it was an education. And when you, when you have a, a group of people, a team mutiny against the coach, everybody loses. Yeah. And the weird part was, Nobody told me on our recruiting trip. These dudes were already pretty much in mutiny form. And it was my majority was the sophomore and junior class. Uh, the seniors were just Marco McCautry and Chris Wiedemann, who great dudes, but not, not natural, you know, fantastic leaders and selfless guys. Um, so they weren't exactly setting an example. The junior class was very much the same way. And the sophomores was the majority of the team. They were too young to know. And some guys had so much individual goals that they couldn't, you know, they just didn't get it, lack of a better term. And the freshmen, of course, we don't get it. We're trying to figure it out. So it's a blind leading the blind a little bit. And Coach Hill's trying to tell us, but these guys have already mutinied against him. We can't succeed. So I think the, that that was something that I learned when you look back on it. I was like thinking about all the comments and stuff in, in preseason and being like, man, we just don't, we don't quite get it. And then on top of that, guys, let's be real. Before we played the Rutgers, it was, it was my first college game at the rack. The scout team, I think we beat the starting team by like 80 Ooh. in a 40-minute scrimmage. It was yeah. like, because we were allowed to do whatever we wanted. Like, I don't think we were, we didn't have bad players. Right. But when everybody had to play a certain way of the Princeton offense, which how Coach Hill wanted to run, which where the mutiny was, he wanted it to be very stringent in how it was run and how it was executed, and the guys didn't want to do it. And that's eventually why I started starting and played a lot of minutes because I'm more of a – if you this is the way you want to run things, I'll run the team for you. I am more of a natural leader. Let's go. I'm going to try to get guys in the positions and do it the way you want it to be done. But that's also an uphill battle when the other teammates may not be there. So uh, sitting there having these, like, therapy sessions, not even touching the balls, and that, that inward thing of being like – all of us had never lost like that before. So that was a, a really hard experience, but I think we all grew a lot from that. Our team got tighter when Joe Jones took over. It was a hard job for him, but the thing that we'd already all hit rock bottom. So it was almost like, forget the mutiny. We'll go, we'll go all in. If this is guy, if this guy's willing, if he can, he can lead us and he's selling it. We all bought in right away. And that's what made us at least hard to beat uh, because we just played so hard in those years after, because that's, that was kind of how the foundation of the program was built, but we bottomed out. So guys, 
guys were ready at that point in time when Joe came in to say, like, we've got to find a way to, to turn this thing around. We realized we don't have the answers. Let's follow somebody. Let's do it. But that mutiny in, in year one was pretty ridiculous. Tough times for sure, Dallin. But somehow, some way, you and your teammates are able to push through that season. And then Joe Jones comes aboard. And uh, for our listeners to know, Joe Jones is currently the head coach at Boston University in the Patriot League. Um, I know Joe... Uh, through his years at coaching uh, at Columbia, and I consider him a friend. He is, he is simply one of the funniest people I have ever met. We talked about Walter Towns a little bit earlier, but I have to tell you, Joe and I would be at recruiting events. He's coaching at Columbia. I'm at Princeton, and I'm supposed to be getting work done and 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 watching the recruits, but I am completely distracted. Because uh, I'm howling at whatever Joe is talking about at the time. Um, he's that funny, and I have those memories fresh in my mind. I'm wondering, was he that funny to play for? And just in general, what was the experience like playing for Joe Jones? Uh, let, let me, let me, oh, that's a great question. Let me put that in pause for one second. Do you want to tell the Walter Town story? This is one of my favorite stories. Um, I, I thought I had this, like, nutrition and science and diet and technology has been probably the biggest change since I played to where we are now, sure. understanding your bodies, how to take care of your body and guys valuing it, kids understanding it. So I have a massive sweet tooth and I would just like, now I can't even like look at a cookie cause I'll just I'll become the cookie monster. I'm like an addict. So I don't even, you can't even mess with it. But what I like pregame meals and stuff, some places we were playing at Georgetown before the, uh, it was a tournament right around Thanksgiving. And I make this like, we're playing Georgetown in like five hours, four hours. I make this brownie <laughs> Sunday that was like to die for. I mean, it was like, I crafted it. We're talking guys. I had like three brownies, three scoops. I mean, I did this. I, I was amped. I walk over, sit down to eat it. Right. If we, and Towns watch, I was like, Hey, big fella, big time. You can't be, you can't be eating that before the game. I was like, no, nah, I'll be fine. Give, give me that. He takes this out on Sunday. Not as he take it. My man sits down. And I love Walt. Sits down and just eats it. Like, I'm like sure he, for me. <laughs> he just mauled it. And I was like, yo, that was my Sunday. <laughs> I was just like so distraught by that. Now, in <laughs> retrospect, less Sundays would have probably been a long way for your boy. I definitely, toward the later part of my career, I was probably playing like 20 pounds overweight. But I digress. Um, That's I do excellent. love that story. <laughs> and, um, you, and by the way, for our listeners, you have the voice down perfect, too. <laughs> That's my guy, man. Yes, yes, he is the uh, best. Big time, big time. Um, but JoJo, Coach Jones was—he was great. I loved playing for him. Um, he, he, the thing that I loved about him is he was going to demand that we give everything possible to the program and to each other, mm. and forced us to really understand like these are these guys, these moments. This is the stuff you're going to remember. Not necessarily all the wins and losses. Like that stuff's real. That that he forced all these guys to be friends and create a family. And these are. I mean, I was just staying at Matt Preston's house. That's where I was, I mean, his apartment. And Preston's been my boy now for 20 years. But when wow. we, that freshman year, I couldn't stand Preston because we're very different people. Right. And we come from different places and we see things differently. And he's just, and we've said this before, I couldn't deal with him. And then Joe comes in. I stay that summer. Preston's always around. He lives in Long Island, was a really good player in Nassau County and St. Mary's. Um, so he's, he's local. And he would stay on campus too. And And because of how Joe was, it forced us to, two very different people to start to understand each other and relate to each other. And that be like, we formed lifetime friendships with all these guys um, was probably the most impactful thing that he did in terms of, you know, our lives really. And on top of that, he would be, you guys would be committed to me, committed to each other, committed to the program. I'm also going to help you get jobs, which is where the, some of the previous uh, uh, coaching staff wasn't as focused. It seemed I wasn't, I wasn't there from talking to guys, but he was really adamant that, Hey, we're going to, we're going to use our network. We are Columbia university. We're in New York City. We're going to have the alums come up here and talk to you. You're going to meet with them. You're going to hopefully they can find you internships or help you build your network out. And he was really committed to helping us succeed after playing for him, which was really important. And a lot of guys, particularly in the finance world, were able to really capitalize on that um, and start their careers in really good places and have really good internships, um, which is really important. And he helped me too. He got me an internship at MSG with, with Mike Quick, which helped chart my path forward too. Um, so it was it was. Uh, I love playing for him and I loved our whole staff too. Jim Engels, who's now the coach there was the lead assistant when I was there. Chris Parsons played for Mount Hofstra. Um, he was there as well. Mike Bermucci was on the first staff when he came from Manhattan and that collection of characters like that, those four dudes were a unique, unique set of young men. It's just uh, young men too. Cause they were all, you know, mid early thirties and Parsons yeah. mid twenties right. coaching these guys. And I think coach, you know, this and, and, and Lawrence, I'm sure you do too, is 
like Joe got the job when he was 36 years old. So he's right. now two years younger than me getting the job to run these young men's lives. That, that's, that's hard. Like when now when you have that perspective of being this age and thinking about that, and I know there are things he would have done different and mistakes that he made in terms of whether it was recruiting or in-game stuff or just a general approach at times. Um, but you got to live and learn. And that right. was, uh, he, he's, he's, you know, I, I love playing for him. I, I, his BU team this year is very good actually too. Um, so always root for him uh, from afar now. And last thing on Joe, just in terms of that commitment to you, to, 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 to the guy who has a play for you. So I leave my job in 2011. I quit my marketing and advertising job, go all in, try to make broadcasting work. Um, had some ins at MSG Varsity, which and ins at Verizon Fios One, which is launched in New York to get some games. I'm still doing the Columbia Radio stuff. So I'm like, hey, I can try to make this work and cobble it together and grind and see where it can go. Um, long story short, the first like real opportunity I had was NBC Sports Network. Um, took the Ivy League package, which was big. It was my first national package and be an analyst. That was uh, important, but I was learning to be a host and reporter. So that and, and from NBC had these, the, as you mentioned it already, uh, Sydney, the CSN New England is one of their regionals. So like, hey, we want to put you in that regional as a broad, as a hoster, host and reporter, and then you do the national stuff for basketball. Right. Do you want this job? 100% I want it. Came, I came, came quick because it was supposed to be the one in D.C. Contract fell through the last minute. Then one in Boston called like like two days later, and like, we want you up here. Okay, when do you start? Like 10 days. Or what was a week or something like that? Like, yeah, Jeez. let's go. Yep. But Joe is now at BU. So I tell him I'm coming up there. I'm moving up. Hey, if you need anything, place to stay. So I start scrambling around trying to figure it out. So I had to call him and say, hey, man, can I, can I, I, I do need a place to stay. Whatever you need. So I said, I live with him for a month. I live with him and wow. his family. That's in amazing. the basement of his house with with Sydney, his daughter, yeah. little Jay, little yeah. Jay, yeah. Christy, uh, Kristen, and him for, for for a month. Like that was the kind of commitment, and it was never an issue. It wasn't a question. It's like, no, you're staying here until you till you get your room or get your apartment or whatever you get settled. So like that, like he talked the talk, but he he always walked the walk of taking care of his guys. We're fortunate to have Columbia University alum and one of ESPN's best, Dallin Cuff, with us on the Ivy League Hoops Hour. Let's not keep this fun to ourselves, folks. Make sure to spread the word to friends and family on our show and encourage them to listen, follow, and give us a five-star rating. And as always, send your suggestions on topics or guests to interview or just your general feedback to Ivy League Hoops Hour at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dallin Cuff. That's that's excellent, Dallin. And I have to say this, and he he is my guy. That's not only an endorsement, all, all that you just shared in terms of the value of Columbia University and all that it, it brings to the table, but but a Joe Jones, because he's, mm-hmm. he's that type of dude. He's that type of, of leader and friend and mentor. Um, and, and certainly sounds like he's, you know, been transformative. Um, those lessons learned and you coming together with teammates and guys that you don't have anything in common. And then you turn around and you realize these are your brothers, mm-hmm. you know, um, which, which is a perfect segue is like when you guys. You, you just, Cindy, you did ask if he's funny. He's hilarious. Yeah, he's funny. But the thing that was real funny with him, too, and he doesn't take it well. When you start to when you when you start to bust his chops, really, and there were times like you could do it. Like he, this is why we're real tight. Like he's my guy. But even if we were playing, it was kind of like I would needle my dad at times. My older brothers would be like, uh-huh. "Yo, you're really you're pushing the pushing the envelope here." <laughs> right, like I would right, say right. some stuff, and because he would he would say some stuff too. Like he would he would. <laughs> I mean, can we curse on this podcast? Uh, you can go there. Yeah, you can go there. Well, because I mean, coach, coach, he's loose lips. You know, he lets yes, he, he he him fly every now yes, and again. He is. So, but he would just be like, "Yo, you fat, <laughs> and you stop eating all these things." Like, and it was I did was I was playing overweight. I just didn't care. But he just like, that was a problem. Um, but when you give it, so he would give it to me. But if I gave stuff back to him about being like 140 pounds soaking wet, like he would, he would, he would take it to a point. And some of the guys would be like, "Yo, man, you you might make us run here <laughs> yeah, tomorrow. He yeah, might take us down. Like, you want to be easy, but you can have fun with him." And then as we've gotten. I was obviously, obviously getting out of school and being adults and go, he was at my wedding. He was at Scalzo's wedding a couple summers ago. Bauman's like all these guys, like he's, um, he, he's hilarious. And I always have so much fun just, just kicking it with him because it's, he's one of the dudes. You can have fun talking to him. Eddie Murphy, Dave Chappelle to me, that, that might be <laughs> why we get along so well. Cause I don't really have any one liners coming back. I'm, I'm just crying when he's saying this or he's saying that, but that's, that that that's who he is and and now mm-hmm. you 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 kind of we're even having this joy of like what it is to 
to have these shared experiences and these times together. And, and when you get with your teammates, what, what is it like? What are the stories that kind of come up? And, and I'll give you, and I also want to combine it with Dallin, if you will, are, are there, are there like great players or alums that kind of uh, uh, come up or that you mix with and where I'm going with it is like at, at Princeton, uh, it was pounded over the head with, you know, Sydney, you're, you're not like Armand Hill. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're not like George Lefkowitz. And, and it was annoying as anything, but it was also like inspiring, um, motivating. And, and then it was also like some reverence for those guys who came before me, Dallin. And, and that to me kind of built a tradition and an understanding of a program versus a team. You know, I think programs mm-hmm. connect the teams over the years. So um, when you're with your team, there's one kind of dialogue and joy, but then are there, are there other, are there Columbia greats and names that come up or are connected to you guys as well? Yeah. I think that's one thing that Joe did that was really important. Uh, again, from the previous, like at least the one year I was with Armand and, and the staff, there was no real connection to the alums, uh, the fan base. It wasn't a real concern to get the kids involved, uh, but particularly alums. Like there would be some guys like Gary Raimondo is a guy that's all, he was a really good player. I think in 99 is when he graduated. He was. It was all yeah, yeah one, one of the yeah. tops in the league in, 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 in club history in, in steals and points mm-hmm. and things like that and assists. Mm-hmm. But he always he was always around because he 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 wanted to make a point for himself. And he was always great to us. Every time we after some tough losses, he was there to, to help drown some sorrows at times. We needed that, especially that freshman year. But like guys like him would just be there because they wanted to be there. Derek Mayo, they wanted to be there. But when Coach came, Coach Jones came he made a concerted effort of really trying to reach back. And some of those guys, Raimondo, DiMeo, they were real close in age to us, so it was different when they would come back. But he would try to reach back and say, hey, we got to connect with these, these teams, these players that were great. We have to understand your point that the recent history may not have been that good, but the program has had tremendous success in the 60s and 70s up into the 80s. Um, and so that they would go back and was Alton Bird or Richie Gordon uh, or rest of the soul, Jim McMillan, and their whole 68 team, they made a real point of what well, was the last time Columbia won the Ivy League and went to the NCAA tournament of bringing those guys in. And, and it wouldn't be, to your point, City, the direct comparison of I'm not like X, but having these people around and understanding their expertise and having them close right. uh, was important as we went through school. And then afterwards, just maintaining those relationships um, with the things they've done and a lot of the experiences they've had and how they've been able to help continue all of our education as we move into different fields um, has been huge. So I think that's that's important. What, what coach did and in, in, in helping build that program feel was really important in terms of our team. The majority of our stories, ironically, are, are, are from those of us that experienced that fresh, that 0203 season. Cause it is, there are just so many, you, you have to look back and laugh. Cause it was, like I said, that's why it's a dark comedy. Like we have others. I mean, other stories will be told and we'll definitely joke around about, you know, coach Jones's biggest meltdowns in different places and, you know, coolers that were thrown or balls that were kicked. Um, and we laugh about those things all the time. Um, but I do think a lot of times things go back to freshman year because there's just so many, so many stories from that year. Just like, what that, what was going on? It was, it was, it was crazy. Um, but yeah, guys definitely. And in terms of really good players, like, I, I mean, they came after, I mean, Ben, Ben Wachuku, you know, was a great player, but the, like could have been a better player, but it didn't matter right now. He's like one of the best surgeons in the country and wow. it's going to be like running hospitals and like really changing Excellent. people's lives. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah. like the stuff he's accomplished. John Bauman, great player, but also doing so much more to like impact his community. Like there's, there were a lot of those guys. You like we, like there, there were really good players, especially that came after me. But I think a lot of the stuff those guys have done in the business world and in the social impact world has been way, just way more important and way bigger. Dallin, that that's the Ivy League story, right? And that's mm-hmm. the Columbia mm-hmm. University men's basketball story. And uh, you know, it's 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 really well said is we pivot to present day now where you have this terrific career now in sports broadcasting and working at ESPN, but other networks. And uh, as we alluded before, different sports and different uh, big time events, Uh, but you've seen a lot of growth. I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes and I'm I'm just wondering uh, since the time that you started to even just now today, what are some of the changes or trends um, that you've seen in the, in the sports world uh, that are really strong and vibrant present today that maybe uh, weren't necessarily uh, in, in play or in vogue when you first started out? Yeah, I mean, and in all honesty, the whole I mean, college sports and the media landscape is just changed 
a, a boatload and rapidly, really, in the last five years with, with cord cutting becoming more relevant, how streaming factors into things, the accessibility from obviously Ivy League and ESPN did a deal that, that includes, um, you know, every game on ESPN Plus. But I think I'm, I'm calling all of our games on uh, that are on ESPN linear platforms, which I'm excited to get back and be able to call the league games. I think all but one. I think I have a conflict with, with a different game. But um, so like those type of things, those didn't exist. You know, that exposure for the Ivy League or whether it's the Ohio Valley or the American or SoCon, like a lot of these conferences are doing these deals to be on ESPN Plus and be on a platform and have bigger exposure that didn't have before. And those highlights a lot of times, I mean, if you haven't noticed since the Ivy League and ESPN did that deal, how many times have like, for some reason it's always Harvard or Harvard Columbia buzzer beaters that lead up to like second overtime or first overtime end up on SportsCenter. Yeah, like that right. stuff, that matters because how our company works, unfortunately, is like when we're invested with the league, that league gets more love, like just right. how it works. The NHL all of a sudden is all over uh, SportsCenter because they bought back the rights to the NHL. Right. Um, so the landscape has changed so much there. But the college, obviously, this past summer, I think we're going to look back in years, uh, decades, and say 2020 summer, 21 summer, was where that, that will be a, a the dividing line. There'll be a precedent-setting summer in terms of college sports and how it's litigated, whether it's the transfer portal or transfer waiver, I should say, uh, NIL passing, how that affects, you know, how that the positive effects that has on players and maybe, you know, reten- talent retention or talent disbursement based on who's beaten or talent recruitment. We'll try to figure out how all NIL plays into NIL plays into all those things. And maybe the biggest one was the, um, was the Alston decision that said you can't cap educational benefits from the Supreme court decision. And within that uh, justice Kavanaugh, you know, lining out that he basically, he did say, he said outside of this model would be illegal in every other industry in the country, except for college sports, which left, has left the door open for eventually, I think we're going to get to a point where they're paying players. Maybe it's just football players. Maybe it's just the power five basketball. I don't know, but I think we've, there's just been so much change in the last couple of months and we're going to see what that plays out, but there's going to have massive effects and ripple effects for years to come. So I think, yeah, when I got into this business and even uh, it's, it's become so different uh, since when I got into it, but particularly the last five years, as everything, the whole media landscape changes while college sports goes to this massive evolution. And I will say, at least with NIL, and I know talking to, I know you guys had Kale Catchings on the last episode, and I remember talking to him before the season started about some of their NIL opportunities and how they've approached some things. I think the Ivy League guys have a unique, obviously the experience is unique, but your, your opportunity to then leverage your, your brand, your value with all these and all your teammates and all these really brilliant people around you that have all these different ideas. And maybe now you can really tap into it and benefit from it monetarily. Um, it's going to help change some of these guys' lives and give some guys some, some more deserved money and opportunity um, to leverage their ability, their talent, but also the brand name of the schools they play for it yeah. uh, in those four years. Yeah. Yeah. Dallin, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today and sharing your insights and, and taking us down memory lane a bit. And I, I, a side note is, uh, you know, mental health is, is very real. Um, and, and I don't take that lightly. Um, but I am inspired um, and motivated to hear about you recalling that freshman year and that that was, I'm sure, mentally draining and tough. Um, but but you you took so much from it. Um, you learn so much from it. You, you, you bonded with others from it. And so it's not, you know, not every smooth path leads us to the f- formation of our best self. You know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. so I just applaud you for sharing that with us. And, and maybe some of our listeners can, can appreciate that as well. And that sometimes in the struggle, um, some good things can happen. So, so thank you. Um, and thank you for talking about uh, Columbia and, and, and Ivy League and, and ESPN and all of that. And before we let you go, we'd be remiss. You know, we close out all of our interviews with asking our guests, you know, if there's something moving forward, whether it's in the TV world, whether it's Columbia basketball, whether it's Ivy League basketball, college basketball, anything, Dallin, that comes to mind that you would love to see come to fruition in, in the very near future. I think what, what I would like to see happen, because I think it's, it's delinquent in happening, and I don't understand it, and I don't only think it benefits the student-athletes and the eight institutions, is for the Ivy League to allow graduate students to play. Okay. And the reason I say that is because when you keep sending our best players, like obviously Paul Atkins is now at Notre Dame. We saw Seth Towns have to leave. He's still, he's still at Ohio State, so it was yeah, he's he still at Seton Hall. Like, yep. you, you have these guys we've shipped out, and then I'm, I'm leaving off a tons of other names because yeah. there's, so, there's so many guys. If, if they want to continue their education at one of the foremost institutions in the world, 
and represent their school at the highest level and hopefully help that school have an opportunity to win a championship, gain more uh, more, more fame and, and success in their programs, kind of help validate what they helped build, although maybe they lost a year because they were injured. It shouldn't be taken away from them. I don't understand why we're, we have our programs building these young men and women, uh, driving them forward, having great uh, excellence, obviously in the court and in the classroom. And then if they have one year left, we, we give that, we, we give this almost finished product to somebody else and let them have, take that product and use it to their benefit, their school's institution and their benefit. I just don't understand why I get the whole force of the eight semesters thing. I get it. I love, I know we love to be unique, but I think this is only doing detriment to the student athletes, the coaches that invested so much in it and the institutions ultimately, because we're giving away, literally giving away our best players. So I, I would love for them to, to, to take a look at that, understand the change in college in the landscape, and how things work. And you can make the rule that maybe we're not taking grad transfers in. If they're, That's fine. I'm saying if you're at the institution and you want a fifth year, you should be given that fifth year to continue representing that school that you helped build and that, that helped, build, helped mold you. Dallin, as you know, just this year because of COVID, that there's a one-year exception to mm-hmm. that. And so Brown mm-hmm. is benefiting greatly from Cho, yep. who's playing, yeah. um, and, and Dartmouth as well. And uh, there may be a couple other student athletes that I'm not recalling right now. But in general, Dallin, just a quick follow-up is it seems to me like in the Ivy League, um, there's a prevailing thought that, you know, most of the times universities, administrations, uh, in the ancient eight, they're, they're not necessarily going to have athletic decisions uh, drive policy, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm saying that uh, respectfully, uh, you know, I'm not, not not sure where I'm pro or against, but how would you respond to that just from the standpoint of I almost feel like the hesitancy is not to have athletics trigger something that might make sense uh almost have to find a, an academic or university administrative reason uh, to make this happen. And what would you say to that? I would, I would love to know the numbers of, of athletes that go on to get a graduate level degree, whether it be in medicine or law or any, any, any grad school, business school, because all you're doing, I thought a lot of times these kids end up like at least guys I know, I can think of my team alone. There are, I think about eight guys that went to different Ivy league schools for, in, in terms of their post-grad. So all you're doing in my mind is giving them the ability to continue their education. You give them year one, guess who's playing for probably year two and three to finish it or year two or whatever it may be. I think you're helping them move. You're keeping quality people across a different spectrum in your, in your institution, ultimately to continue further their education. Cause I I don't think it may seem like it's athletically driven, but a lot of these things, they're going to capitalize on the academic uh, institution that that we're part of. Like that's part of why we all, we all did this is to be, part of these unique and amazing academic institutions. So I think anybody that's going to get a grad school that's going to stay for as a grad student is going to finish whatever that, that major is versus going. And I'm not trying to knock other schools. You go to Ohio state or you're going to go down to Alabama to play for a year. I don't think you're, you're focused on the academic piece of it. I really, I mean, you, you don't go from Yale to, to Alabama and tell me you're focused on the academic piece of it. Now you can do as much as you can there, but the rigor and the, the standard is just, it's just flat out different. So, if that player could have actually stayed and continued to challenge themselves at Yale, I think that's a better academic outcome for that individual and for the institution than letting them go to, to some of these other, usually power five schools where the, where the academics are just not the same. No, I agree, Dallin. And I'll, I'll say this, you know, from a coach that loved the league and, and a student athlete like yourself in, in the league, the ancient eight is outstanding in all that it offers, but there's, there's a pretty big challenge in terms of luring student athletes to the league. There is a sacrifice. There is something that you're giving up. And so I would just say for me, it's hard to bring in these great student athletes. And now the ones that you're talking about specifically after three, four years, they're saying, coach, I want to stay, (laughs) you know, like I want to do another year. So it's like, man, it's hard to have them come. And now they're telling us they want to stay. I'm also failing to see why that would be a negative, but um you know, maybe it'll change. And, and while it does, I know you'll be calling, calling the games, giving analysts uh, analysis, and also hopefully uh, coming back to the uh, podcast and joining and me and Lawrence. Uh, we, we certainly hope so. Dallin, you've been wonderful. Can't thank you enough for your time. And on behalf of Lawrence and myself, thanks a ton for being us on the Ivy League Hoops Hour. Thanks for having me, Sydney and Lawrence. Appreciate it. Anytime you guys let me know. I also was listening to your last episode. I do love that you mix in the Roy Keane Uh, My eyes don't lie. We're getting some soccer references, so I love it. I'm a listener, and if you guys ever want me, 
Happy to come back on. You get me, brother. Take care, Dallin. You had a friend's uh, group gathering mm-hmm. before you guys left um, mm-hmm. after one of our games that we won. Um, oh, before like we, we went out there. Yeah. Okay. So we started the season 2-0. and oh. That's I right. And then, that and then you had the friend's group gathering on okay. uh, the East Court. Okay, after after the second game, maybe? Yeah, after we won. Okay, all right. And your speech, in part, consisted of, uh, even if this team is, we lose the next 20 games or something like that. And I was like, why would he think that? Like, we... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we're winning. Like, <laughs> who are we going to play that's going to that's gonna stop us? For our listeners, we went six and twenty-three that season. <laughs> Just so you all know. <laughs> I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> it's not gonna go that badly. Lawrence, I tell people I I I'm not I'm very rarely the smartest person in the room, but I'm very rarely the dumbest either. <laughs> That's what I pride myself on. I'm I'm not the smartest. But I'm certainly not the dumbest. But I I take a lot from that year. You know, it's so funny. We're talking about this when Dallin Cuff joins us and he shares how much, you know, they were able to write the ship a bit in sophomore, junior, senior year. But he and his teammates talk so much about the struggles of their freshman year, you know, and how how challenging that was. And here you and I are talking about six and twenty-three worst season in Princeton basketball history, which is something that is is tough to say. I'm the head coach of that team. I'm obviously a proud alum and former player, but there was so much that we learned, you know, you and I and the players and the coaches that informs me today. And I'll never forget, there's a number of never forgets, and I'll give you two. My godmother told me at the time during that tough season, she said, Sydney, they need you to show them what mental toughness is. And, you know, she knew it was like really breaking me down. And she's like, I, I understand it and I hear you and I'm with you, but those young men need you to show you what mental toughness is. And then the other one is Frank Sawinski, former Princeton uh, player, one of the best ever to put on the uniform and play for Coach Carrillo. A, the a Polish rifle. Mine, the Polish rifle. He said, Sydney, and this was uh, maybe the following year or after, he said, everyone goes through a 6-23 and 23 season in their life. Everyone. And it's how you get back up on your feet. And it gives me chills to this day, Lawrence. I'll never, ever, ever forget it. And Frank is my guy. But he said that to me, and I was like, you know, it was like one of those aha moments. It's like you show who you are in those types of situations. And uh, man, I mean, I, I hold on to that to this day. And now we come to the segment of our program where we respond to listener emails. This week's email comes from friend of the show, John Solomon, who asks... If a team can play too fast, especially while winning down the stretch, can a team also play too slow with a lead down the stretch? Yeah, brilliant, brilliant question. And uh, I love the fact that John is calling attention uh, some of the conversation we've had throughout the season. And this reminds us of, uh, you know, discussion last week and the week before. So let's dive right into it. Basketball is a game of runs and it's a game of momentum. So convinced of that. Um, while it is also, it has this undercurrent of being a possession-based game, which is what Dean Oliver helped us realize. And that's why analytics is so important and has been so commonly embraced. And so if to try to integrate them, Lawrence is like, I actually despise when I'm listening to a game on TV and either one of the people calling the game say they're, they're taking the air out of the ball or, uh, you know, they might be playing too slowly here. And I actually dislike that, like down the stretch, because momentum is one thing, but it's not 
in my professional opinion, it's not tied necessarily to pace. I worked with an excellent basketball coach by the name of Tyson Wheeler, and he would tell our guys 30, 30, 30. And what that meant down the stretch, Lawrence, is when we had the lead, take 30 seconds to shoot it. Try to take 30 seconds to force the other team to run clock. Take another 30 seconds to shoot it. Ball game. And that's like at any point that we hit, you know, roughly a, a six-point lead with about that much time remaining. And with that 30-30-30, and that, that's the math, and that's maybe what I didn't include enough uh, last time around that we talked about it, there's a finite run of when we're going to be engaged with the team that we're facing, and the game is going to end. There's a fixed point. And so with a lead – can you ever play too slow down the stretch? No, you can just not be as efficient. You certainly want to avoid that, but I would rather take more time with a lead and not be as efficient than definitely take less time, keep shooting, 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 and be less efficient because I know what's going to happen in the latter. I think I, I've got a pretty good shot taking the former approach. Does that make sense? Yes. Although some would say that by changing your pace of play, you might become less efficient. Yes, they might say. And all I would just say is do the numbers bear? And that's a challenge that is smack dead in the face for Cornell men's basketball right now because they are balling and playing fast and efficiently. But there's going to be a point down the stretch where they have to make this decision for themselves and they have to track those numbers. For me, the basketball that I've seen and been around, and I, I absolutely love this game and study it, I want to go with the, the probable numbers, analytic base of what it takes to win a game down the stretch. And I need to bring my numbers forward. I, I just think 30-30-30 and approaches like that have seemed to, to rule the day. But that's why this is such an awesome debate. And uh, we're literally going to see it play out, you know, this season. Lawrence, let's divvy out our non-Ivy nods of the week. What do you have? My nod goes to the Arizona Wildcats, who are sitting at 10-0 and 0 with first-year head coach Tommy Lloyd. Good choice there, Lawrence. Well, how about this? When I say USC, which school do you think of? The University of Southern California. Yeah, well, the Gamecocks of the University of South Carolina, Lawrence. That USC is working hard to change what you and I and probably a whole lot of other people think of when they say USC. They boast the number one ranked women's basketball team in the country. And the Gamecocks are led by the great Dawn Staley and her star player, Aaliyah Boston. And Last week, the Gamecocks maintained their undefeated record in a 66-59 victory over eighth-ranked Maryland. Lawrence, the Gamecocks are lining them up and knocking them down. They've already beaten nine-ranked Oregon, second-ranked UConn, that eighth-ranked victory against Maryland. And then over the last few days, they even knocked off Duke, who I believe was ranked 15th in the country. So my nod of the week, USC Gamecocks. Yours, tip in your hat to Coach Lloyd and Arizona. And let's spread some love, Lawrence, throughout the Ivy League in terms of athletics, non-basketball. And I'm looking at you, Penn, the women's tennis team, as they posted three young ladies who are ranked in the top 100, senior Yulia Brishkalova and freshman Sabine Rutlauka emerged in the singles rankings, top 100. And then graduate student Maria Chernich, along with Brishkalova, are ranked in the top 30 of doubles teams nationally. So well done, University of Pennsylvania Quakers, women's tennis. Now, Lawrence, what are some of the big games coming up in the h and eight? On Sunday, Dartmouth travels to Haas Pavilion to play the University of California. On Tuesday, December 21st, Cornell travels to Syracuse. And on Wednesday, December 22nd, Brown travels to in-state rival Rhode Island. 
Those are some very interesting matchups, Lawrence. You know, Brown and Rhode Island. Mike Martin actually has a couple of wins versus Rhode Island over the years, so that should be an interesting matchup. And then the Bayheim boys facing off against Cornell, obviously the youngest Bayheim, starring for Brian Earl over the years and then transferring and now playing with his father. So let's see if the Big Red can exact a little bit of revenge there. We'll see. That's a wrap for this week. This has been the Ivy League Hoops Hour, a labor of love, as we say each and every week. Lawrence are enjoying ourselves coming to you, but we can't do this without you. So a couple of things. One, please let family, friends, colleagues, everyone know about the show and encourage them to listen in, to follow us. Give us a five-star rating. And we want to hear from you. Suggested topics, guests to have on the show, and of course, always your feedback and comments. So email us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com. We love to hear from you and respond. Enjoy Ivy League basketball, basketball in general. Stay safe out there. And we will see you on the Ivy League Hoops Hour, same time next week. I don't know if I ever told you this, because I didn't tell anybody that I wasn't going. And so maybe the day before or a couple days before, it was like, do you want to go? And I'm like... Well, you know, everybody wants to go to Maui, but, you know, I'm not going, so I'm not, <laughs> I don't even think about it. He's like, well, why don't you, why don't you just tell Coach Johnson you want to go or else you're going to quit? I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's going to tell me, well, it's been great. See ya. <laughs> Goodbye. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> right.